you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, we're actually just going to do that once. We're going to. So, if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, we're going to be at the end of chapter 5, that last section, starting in verse 33. So, we're in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Now, so, before we read, let me just make a couple of comments here. Uh, you will see this is this is not isolated, as any text is not isolated from the surrounding context. And this is in the middle, really the middle part of an ongoing series of confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And we'll talk about the Pharisees here a little bit in a minute. But uh, you'll see it was just a, a few verses before, after Jesus had called Levi. The one that we call Matthew sometimes. And uh, Matthew ends up, uh, Levi ends up taking Jesus home and throwing a party for him. Back in verse uh, verse 29 it says, Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table. This is after Levi had been called to follow Jesus. So Jesus calls him as a disciple. And then, uh, I, I promise we'll get there. Oh, well, we're going back in time. <laughs> this is this is historical good and historical information. Wow, that's scary. Good job, Zeke. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, our text is actually in verse 33, but this is a second or another confrontation that he has with the, the Pharisees. And so, and, then, and this is actually not the second. In the previous passage, he had been confronted because he healed someone and had, had dared to say, "Your sins are forgiven." Now, here, Matthew gets called, Levi gets called, he throws a party for Jesus, and the Pharisees are like, oh, so you're eating and drinking with sinners. Well, in our text today, we have another situation where I think in the context, there's a party going on. Imagine this, there's a feast, everybody's eating, everybody's having a good time, and then along come the Pharisees, and they say, so, well, uh, what's your view of fasting? You know, like, they're in the middle of a feast. And they want to talk about fasting. So that's where our text picks up today. So Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Oh, there it is. Okay. And the scripture says, this is ESV. And they said to him, that is, they being that same group, including the Pharisees. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the, while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled. And, if the, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. No one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. And there's another confrontation after this one. We'll save that for next time. Let, let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding this text. 
God, help us open our eyes, give us the spirit, give us understanding. We can't even begin to understand, believe, love, follow you the way that we should without help. And so we ask for help in Jesus. Amen. So have you ever had somebody that uh, didn't like you and you knew that they didn't like you? One of the ways they, that you know that they don't like you is because they kind of follow you around and they look for opportunities to snipe and, and to nitpick. I, I don't know what your work situation I, I love my job and I love the people that I work with. But occasionally I work with a few people that I would call snipers. And uh, you know what a sniper does? A sniper just lays and they wait for the enemy to get into the right position and then they take their shot. One shot, one kill kind of deal. Well, the, the sniper, you know, they may observe a thousand accomplishments pass by. But the one day that they catch you slipping, you know, there's an email that goes out to both departments. Why did this happen? Well, this, this happens in other settings. I, I think this is the wrong time of year for this illustration, probably. But uh, I don't know if you know anything about, like, the vacation movies with the Chevy Chase. And, you know, everybody's seen Christmas Vacation a million times. But uh, Clark Griswold, the main character, it's pretty obvious that his father-in-law is not a big fan of his. And uh, when he comes over for Christmas, Clark has gone to this great link to create this amazing Christmas light display. You guys, there are lots of laughs about this Christmas light display. You know, he tries to get it to come on, and it doesn't come on, and his dad's like, well, you got to make sure that there's, there's no lights burned out, and so they, you know, they're going through all the lights, and he falls off the ladder, and there's all kinds of humor. But finally, the lights come on, you know, and the Hallelujah Chorus starts to play. And uh, there's, there's a joke that's like all the lights in the city of Chicago go dim, you know, and they turn up the power at the power plant just so that Griswold can get his Christmas lights going. The whole family's out there. Everybody's like amazed, you know, these lights. I've never seen a Christmas light display like that. And there's his father-in-law who's like, those lights aren't twinkling, Clark. <laughs> and he's like, ah, thanks for noticing. You know, what, what are you going to say? Thanks. I feel like Clark so many times. That. Thanks for noticing, you know. But uh, you know who this people is, who these people are in your life. You just don't like it, or uh, you've seen it happen. Or maybe you're the guy or the gal that doesn't like somebody, and you're just waiting to catch them slipping. I kind of not to bust you out, Josh, too much, but I, I, I kind of feel like you're there with LeBron, you know. Like you're just waiting to take a shot at LeBron James. But uh, in all seriousness. He's, he's playing out his mind this year. Not going to lie. But uh, anyway, if you don't like him, you don't like him. You know, it's just that way. Well, the Pharisees were like this for Jesus. They uh, followed him around, as it were, just waiting to take their shot. And every time they thought they had a good one lined up, they did not hesitate to take their shot. Who, who are these Pharisees? These are, these are religious leaders in Jesus' day. These are uh, probably the conservative party, if, if there were parties back then, like, uh, you know, there were another group called the Sadducees, they get mentioned in the New Testament as well. Probably both parties were uh, largely representative of this group called the scribes. The scribes were the people who were the professional Xerox machines. Uh, they, tra they transcribed the Bible letter by letter. You didn't have a Xerox machine in the first century. So if you wanted a copy of the Bible, you had to 
handwrite that copy. And there was a whole elaborate process involved with being a scribe. And these people oftentimes would be experts in the scriptures. And they would become teachers of the scriptures because they spent so much time down to the letter, day in and day out, memorizing, writing, copying. They knew the scriptures better than anybody else in their society. So these Pharisees represent some from that group, and, and they would also represent some from the priestly class, the priests, the Levites that were actually functioning as a part of uh, the worship at the temple and the sacrifices and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, they didn't like Jesus, though, for lots of reasons, but primarily because Jesus showed up and he started teaching as one that had authority. And he would say things like, your sins are forgiven. How dare you say this person's sins are forgiven? We, we don't need somebody out there forgiving sins. We need somebody prescribing conformity, you know? At least, at least uh, that, that seems to be the case with these folks. But they were constantly waiting uh, to take their shot at Jesus. And it, it looks like Jesus had gotten so tired in a holy way of dealing with this that he did not even attempt to hide from them. He, he, didn't, he didn't go out of his way to avoid looking like something where they might take their shot. He let them take their shot, and he put them. He took them to the woodshed. And that's that's what happened. And so here we have a situation where Levi has been called to follow Jesus, and Levi was a tax collector. You all know the story about tax collectors. Tax collectors. We still don't love the tax collector, you know. But uh, tax collectors in the first century were about as bad as you could get. They were uh, oftentimes they were Jews went to work for the Roman government. So they're traitors against their own, and they're scoundrels because, you know, the tax guy, that's how he made his living, is he would take the tax, keep a little bit, and then oppress others by, by taking their money. So uh, no one's a fan of tax guys even today, but these were especially grievous tax collectors. The, the tax collector was thought of so poorly that when Jesus gave the example of, of what happens when you cast someone out of the church. He says you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. And everybody in that first century audience would have gone like, oh, that, that's a bad the tax collector. So this tax collector gets called to follow Jesus as a disciple. And he is so pumped to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to have his life changed, that he wants to throw a party for Jesus, for his disciples, and invite all of his friends. He's, he's evangelizing. He's doing in-home evangelism. And the snipers are like, you eat and drink with sinners, don't you? Because, obviously, the tax collectors are sinners. And, and of course, Jesus sets them straight. And he says, it's not, it's not the well that need a doctor. It's the sick. And then in this text today, you can imagine that, that context still ringing where there's this party and they're eating and they're drinking and they're feasting. They're feasting because their sins are forgiven. They're feasting because they have reason to rejoice. I, 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 think, I think this puts to, uh, puts to death any idea about Jesus that he walked around with a frown on his face and a stern, angry look. He, he probably had a stern, angry look when he turned over tables and went after people like the Pharisees and called them snakes and vipers and all of those kinds of things. But when he was with sinners, 
he was compassionate, and he was gracious, and he was warm, and he was friendly. He was partying with these folks. And they're there waiting, and, and they take another shot, but this time they're shot. They blend in the disciples of John, because the disciples of John uh, are fasting as well. And so, and so this is how devious the devil is. This is how devious the Pharisees are. They try to recruit John's group into their party to take their shot against Jesus. So they say, well, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. This is verse 33. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, they eat and drink. So who's, who, who's, who's the real believer here? Who's the person that really honors God here? Is it, is it the one over there partying with sinners? I mean, look at him. He's with sinners. Look at the company he keeps. Or is it like us, Pharisees? We, we're like the disciples of John. We're over here fasting. And I love Jesus' response. So he responds in verse 34. He says, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So imagine this setting, I, 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 I'll talk about this uh, royal wedding that happened yesterday, only because I have to, if it's relevant, right? But uh, if you didn't know, some folks got married in England yesterday, all right? One of them was royalty, the other one is, I guess, I don't know if she's now royalty. I don't know how the rules work here. I guess she's something because she's married to royalty. But uh, the streets were lined with people ready to watch this. Did you know, I didn't know this, this is crazy. Uh, in Nashville, I guess, at Opryland, the Opryland Hotel, they had like their own little wedding party where they everybody gathered and watched it on big screen and they all like pretended like they were participants in this royal wedding. So like, these are Americans, what's wrong with these folks? <laughs> all right? But they were all, they're all there and they're, and they're celebrating this wedding. And their people are lined up in the streets, and there's all this pomp and circumstance, and everybody's excited about what dress she's wearing and what she did with her hair. She did something controversial with her hair. I don't know. How is the hairstyle controversial anyway? That's so confusing to me. But I read something where her hairstyle was controversial. She did her favorite controversial hair thing, let's say. Whatever that means. Somebody know what that means? I don't know what that means. But there was all of this attention and all of this excitement, and, and like I even saw where some uh, some Episcopalians are using this to kind of advertise church. They're like, "Did you like what you saw at the royal wedding? Come to church on Sunday." You know, this is a big deal for lots of folks. Could you imagine, in the middle of all of this ceremony and the dancing? I guess there's dancing. There should have been dancing if it wasn't. All of the celebration and all of this, you know, the the prince has gotten married. Yay! There's some old guy standing around going, what do y'all think about the fast? That's, uh, that's where the Pharisees, that's the space they occupy here. Okay? The bridegroom is present. Heaven has come down. The Messiah has come. The one uh, in whom all of the promises of God reside. The Alpha and the Omega, God himself has visited humankind and he has stooped so low to invite in tax collectors and sinners and the worst of the worst and their lives are changed and they throw a party akin to a wedding feast 
And these guys are standing around going, why aren't you all fasting? Talk about the, the wrong tune at the wrong time. It's like that Saturday Night Live skit where the, what was her name? Was it Debbie Downer or something like that? Debbie Downer shows up, you know, and there's like, oh, we did this thing, you know, we, we, we accomplished this goal. And she's like, yeah, but we didn't do this one. You know, that's, that's where the Pharisees are here. Heaven has come down to earth. And they want to argue about why the disciples aren't fasting. And it's as if Jesus says to them, look, guys, uh, there's a time and place for fasting. There, there's a time and place for you to be uh, mourning and to be in grief. This is not that time. This is the time to celebrate the coming of heaven to earth. So, should we be in mourning at a wedding feast? Is the day to start your fast the day of, like it's Thanksgiving Day, you know, thing we're waiting all year, Thanksgiving Day, everybody's got the day off of work, I'm going to see my family for the first time. Not a smart day to start a fast. It would be really dumb to show up at Thanksgiving dinner and be like, I'm, I'm fasting today. I'm really spiritual. You know, I mean, you might feel really spiritual, but I think you're really stupid. That would be a dumb thing to do. Now, it would also be dumb to walk into a funeral and to be like, let's party! You know, that would be really stupid. That would not fit. And Jesus doesn't just warn us about those that would uh, miss the boat one way. He also has something to offer for us the other way as well. But in this particular case, them wanting to fast and mourn was completely the wrong thing. It was the wrong tune. This was the wrong place for it. So let me just throw this out there. First, first of all, beware of the hater. You know, there are haters out there, and they're waiting to take their shot. But beware of the spiritual person, the super spiritual person that is uh, always in the morning. <clears throat> you know, there's a kind of there's a kind of uh, phony, I call it phony spirituality, and uh, I think this is especially true for young Christians in the Bible college and in the seminary environment. I, I, I can testify because. I have been that guy, okay, where everybody's, you know, having a good time, and oh, but I'm really serious about the Bible. I, I just, I'm just, I'm just grieved that we can have so much to laugh about while there are souls perishing. <laughs> grieved for this. Uh, you know this guy? You've met this guy, right? And uh, he's on the seminary campus today, okay. But he comes to church every Sunday, too. This guy, he comes to church all over the place. And uh, he's super spiritual. He's always in mourning. And to him, uh, true spirituality looks like a person in pain. Like, if you're not in pain, you're not really spiritual. So this guy reads the Pilgrim's Progress. You, everybody should read the Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress is the best. Okay? But the, 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 this guy... Uh, all this talk about a burden on his back. Oh, I like that stuff. The valley of humiliation, that's home. 
for this guy. That's where he wants to be. And he's upset with everybody else because they're not there. <clears throat> well, let me just say this. There's a whole range of appropriate emotions for a Christian. From excitement and jubilation and joy and pleasure to sorrow and mourning. And there is a place for sorrow and mourning. But it isn't always and everywhere. And if you think that you're more spiritual because you're perpetually in a state of mourning, you have lost your day mind. Alright? And you're doing more harm than good, probably, when you go out there and you put that face on your testimony. So, there is an appropriate place for fasting, though. Jesus tells us, he says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them in verse 34? Then he turns around in verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. And he most certainly was making some kind of reference to a time that would come when he would be separated, uh, of course, around the time of his death. And that certainly was a time of appropriate fasting and mourning. Um, but in a very real sense, even now, the bridegroom, we await his return. We are awaiting a triumphant wedding feast, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That, that hasn't come yet. And, and there is an inappropriate time now for fasting. And we fast because we mourn, we miss our Lord, we miss his coming. And we look out into the world and we see that there are injustices. We see children suffering, we see death. We see decay, we see abortion, we see uh, just a, a mockery of justice in so many places and in so many ways. And it's a right thing to do to mourn and to bow your head and to say, God have mercy, and to fast. And fasting is not done away with in the new covenant. It isn't gone. It is still appropriate to fast. It is still appropriate to mourn in the right time, in the right place. We've got to learn how to do that and how to do that right. One thing that Jesus tells us, if you, if you look over in Matthew chapter 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Some of this is parallel to our text today. But in Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And, and the hypocrites he has in mind are the scribes and the Pharisees. He makes that clear earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. When you do pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they receive their reward. When you do pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And he says also in verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received your reward, their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When we do fast, we fast like New Covenant believers. We fast like followers of Jesus, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And again, beware of the super spiritual person that's contorted in the face look of being in misery is the spiritual look. What's wrong? I'm hungry. I've been fasting for three days. Uh, that's, you're doing it wrong if that's the way you do it. 
But also beware of the, of the person who believes that there's never an appropriate time for mourning. And, and just like there's a, there's a false piety and there's a false kind of Christianity that shows itself in perpetual misery, there's also a kind of false Christianity that shows itself in a constant happy all the time. You know, like this, there's songs about this too that are really misleading and not helpful. Like, I'm not happy all the day. Uh, I'm not always and everywhere going around skipping and grateful. There are days that I'm like really down and broken hearted. And there are days that I identify with David. And, and I say, why do the righteous suffer? And why do the wicked prosper? What's the deal here, God? There's a whole range of appropriate emotions, like I said before, for a believer. And, and if just one of them is your deal, and you think that you're spiritual because you're really good at one of them, you, you're doing it wrong. You missed the point. So beware also of the person who is constantly filled with phony joy and has a plastic smile all the time. I've known people like this. Some of the most venomous people I've met. On the surface. And I think the world, when they meet folks like that, especially Christians, they, they realize, oh, there is something deeply disturbing about this, and they run. It's not helpful. Just as unhelpful as the person who's constantly in mourning. So then Jesus tells a parable. And I think this parable does two things. First thing it does is the parable, he actually tells two parables, but I'm going to just call it a parable because it's two stories kind of tell the same thing. The first thing it does is I think Jesus is telling us, you got to have the right thing for the right thing, all right? So you got to have the right patch for the right garment, and you got to have the right white skin, the right wine skin for the right wine. You want to have the appropriate emotion for the appropriate setting. You want to have the appropriate spirituality for the appropriate event. And so he says it like this. He says, uh, Verse 36, he told them a parable, the scripture says. <clears throat> Sorry, it's 41 years old, I'm going to get closer. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece of, uh, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. So, you know, it's funny because uh, in our setting, neither of these illustrations really packed a punch that they probably did in the first century. Isn't it something that we live in a day and time? It's not very often that we patch up old clothing, right? When was the last time you sewed a patch onto a pair of pants or onto a shirt and kept on wearing it? Uh, all of us probably had in different circumstances, maybe for work or something. But uh, most of us just throw it away and get another shirt. Throw the pants away, get another pair of pants. But in that world, uh, they certainly would have patched up their clothes. He says, uh, you don't take a, a new garment, tear a piece of cloth off, and sew it to an old garment for a couple of reasons. First of all, you destroy unnecessarily a new garment in doing that. It's a new garment. Why would you tear the cloth off of that? Then second, that new cloth, it's, it's not been weathered, and it hasn't cloth and you put it on an old garment, what's going to happen? Whenever it does get washed, that, that new cloth is going to tear away. It doesn't fit. It's not appropriate. 
It's a mismatch. Same thing with the wine. And again, we're not accustomed to making our own wine. Maybe we should get accustomed to making our own wine. But uh, we're not accustomed to making our own wine, generally speaking. And what's it going to do? It's going to pop the old wine skin. But if you put it in a new wine skin, that new wine skin is still stretchy. And so over time, as it ferments and it does whatever wine does, you know, I'm, I, I don't make wine, so I don't know what it does, but it does something with the yeast and all that, and expands, and uh, it doesn't break a new wine skin where it would break an old wine skin. But I think, I think there's a really base level illustration here, and we want to get spiritual with it, and, and it is spiritual. There, there's a spiritual principle here, and there's even probably something about redemptive history that's really important in this passage. But it, it, even on the surface, to bring up fasting at a feast, that's like the wrong thing for the wrong setting. That, that's, that doesn't fit. That's like putting new wine in an old wine skin. That's like putting new cloth on an old garment. Like that it doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense. And the crowd would have been like, yeah, that's kind of odd. They want to talk about that right now in this setting. It doesn't exactly fit. So he's teaching us. Uh, learn to be socially appropriate. Can I say that? Like, that's a spiritual principle. That's not just something that belongs to secular psychology or secular sociology. It is your duty as a Christian to learn how to be socially appropriate in the setting that you're in. It's really easy for us to say, uh, well, I'm introverted by nature. So I'm going to try to avoid social interaction as much as possible. Or I'm extroverted by nature, so I'm just going to be out there. And, and both, it's true, we all have natures. You know, we all have a deck of cards that we've been uh, dealt, so to speak, and we've got to play the cards that we're dealt. But it's not okay to say as a Christian, because you tend towards one end of the spectrum or the other, that you're just going to avoid this altogether. It is your Christian duty to learn how to function appropriately in the right social setting. Because that's part of your witness. That's part of how you interact with people. That's part of how we, like, the going and the preaching the gospel, it's not like a drive-by thing where you just, with a megaphone out the window, scream the gospel to people as you pass them by. God can use a a needle of truth and a haystack of error. He can do all kinds of things with all kinds of means. That's not like ordinarily how people are one to Christ. They're one to Christ through relationships. And relationships require hard work, and they require some kind of social adaptation. That's what that's what, that's Paul talks about being all things to all men, so that by all means he might win some. Like, for the sake of the gospel, it is our duty to work hard, to be the right patch for the right setting. That's not to say that we're supposed to be phony. That's not to say that we're supposed to be uh, unprincipled. But these Pharisees, they just had one note. And they were ready to play that one note, no matter what the song was. Different songs require different notes. Different settings require different attitudes and different approaches. And so, learn this principle. Like, be the right kind of patch for the right kind of garment. 
Be the right kind of wineskin for the right kind of wine. But he almost certainly meant something more than this when he talked about these things. And so, uh, and there's the end of the notes. Well, this is awkward. There's a whole page gone. Okay, so. There is a reality that took place when Jesus came into the world. He was bringing about a new, whatever you want to call it, a new age, a new era, a new administration, a new covenant that changed dramatically the way that man relates to God up to that point. Now, God had always called people to follow him by faith and to believe and to come to him through faith. But in Jesus Christ, we had an embodiment of all of the promises of God. That, that's what the Bible teaches us. And Jesus was so much an embodiment of the promises of God that the temple itself represented him. So like the whole book of Hebrews talks about all of these things that were done ceremonial, ceremonially to represent spiritual principles. And all of those spiritual principles wrap up into the person of Jesus Christ. In the book of Colossians, Jesus is referred to as the substance. Paul calls him the substance. And he refers to the whole ceremonial Jewish calendar as a shadow. Jesus is the substance. All of that stuff is a shadow. Jesus is the, the temple that would be torn down and in three days be built up again. Jesus is the true bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus is the man, the real man, not the thing that was symbolized in the he's the substance. That was the sign. He is the fulfillment of all of those things. And now, in this new age, in this time, brought in by him in his presence, a, a, a new era has come. And it isn't appropriate to worship God in the same modes that you did in the old covenant, in the new covenant. So, uh, for instance, in John, you, you all know the story of the woman, I'm sure, who comes to Jesus at the well, the Samaritan woman, and she starts asking Jesus questions. I said, well, our, our people say that we should worship God on the mountain, and your people say that he should you know, worship God down there. And Jesus says, there's a time coming when people will worship God in spirit and in truth. And, and, and it's, it's as if he's saying, look, there is a time, and it's here, the time is here. God isn't honored by places and times so much as he is honored by a true spiritual worship that fills all things. In 70 AD, that temple was raised to the ground as a final statement that we, we don't worship God in temples made with hands. We worship God in the spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. And there is no doubt that there is something to this in this idea of new wine and new wineskins. And, and there's uh, Luke was the same person that had written the book of Acts, that would write the book of Acts. And uh, there, there's a lot of connection here between those spiritual realities that would become true after Jesus had ascended into heaven and what was going on. And I'm certain that Luke had some of those things in mind when he wrote down these words, remembering and, and, and having done the investigation into what Jesus had said. But the point is, the appropriate 
expression of worship to God is always in and through Jesus Christ. He is the new wineskin, so to speak. He is the container for the new covenant. When we worship Him, we do it in and through Him. That's the way we come to God. And so, uh, certainly a, a spiritual reality here. One last thing. In verse 39, I think this is interesting. The text says, No one after drinking old wine desires new, for it says, The old is good. This, this verse really gave me fits for a long time. Because it almost, it almost seems like uh, maybe out of place. What, what's being said here? And I think probably what Jesus is doing is Jesus is referring to the reality of these disciples of John and perhaps some of the Pharisees. And he's saying they're used to drinking the old wine. And now they're being offered a new wine. And they say, no, I'm good with the old wine. Perhaps what he's doing here is he's giving them some consideration. And he's pointing out the reality that people who are used to one thing oftentimes have a very difficult time receiving the new thing. The new thing is, of course, this message that Jesus is preaching and teaching among his people. So, let's make some application, and we'll be, and we'll be finished here. Interesting story, right? First of all, I said this before, but I'll say it again. Beware of the, of the super spiritual on both extremes. Beware of the super spiritual person who's constantly a mourner, you know. I, I, look, I love Isaac Watts. Uh, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? That is amazing poetry. We should sing that. Like, that's awesome. But at the same time, I'm not just a worm. I am redeemed. I am called a son of God. I am going to have the inheritance of Christ himself. When I stand before God on judgment day, all of the blessings of God through Jesus Christ will be mine because of what my Savior has done for me. A worm. That's something to get excited about. That's something to be rejoicing over, not just banging your head in shame over. But I would say also beware of the super spirituality where you have to be happy all the time, no matter how terrible you feel about your life or about your circumstances. If, if, if the day calls for mourning, then you mourn with no shame. God can handle your emotions, whatever they are. He's not afraid of you. It's an it's a unhelpful thing to make spirituality some template that everybody has to look like. Some days it looks like rejoicing and dancing and some days it looks like mourning and sackcloth and ashes. And both are appropriate expressions of Christian emotions. And then second, and this is related, realize there are times for all kinds of emotional expressions. Brothers and sisters, there are times when we should party it's 1999. We should, we should be ready to rejoice and to be excited because our sins are forgiven. Heaven is not angry with us. We are redeemed. If, if, if that's not something to be rejoicing over and to be partying, I mean like really 
dancing with excitement. Like, we're Baptists, you know. Yeah, we're rejoicing. We're totally rejoicing. I mean, really. Like, people that are really happy about something. I know what they act like when they're excited. It's appropriate to act like that. It's also appropriate to shamor.